of the chapter to you, but I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as I just read the first six verses of Nehemiah chapter 7. This is what Nehemiah records. He says, when the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first. And I found the following written in it. These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles, deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and and Judah to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, with Jeshua, with Nehemiah, with Azariah, with Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bijvi, Nehum, and Benah. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea. I want us to consider a faith that prioritizes. Faith that prioritizes. Let's go before the Lord, Heavenly Father. I ask that you give me spiritual, physical strength to preach your word to your people. Because we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Faith that prioritizes. I'm just going to give you all fair warning. My phone broke this morning, and I usually bring my phone up here for a timer. No, that's okay. Uh, But I gave you a couple short ones the last two weeks, so buckle up. Here we go. A faith that prioritizes. You know, I've learned a few things in my life, uh, specifically as a husband. Being a husband has taught me a a lot of lessons in life, Uh, specifically how to prioritize the right things. Uh, I didn't run the story by my wife, so I apologize. Uh, it's not uncommon in my house for us to have people coming over to the house. As you could imagine, as a pastor, a lot of people want to come visit. It's great. We love people. Uh, whether it's family, friends, church, community, whoever it may be, we typically have a lot of people coming through the doors of our house. But we also have children in our house. And so what that means is that our house usually looks like a bomb went off most of the time. Some of y'all can relate to that. So when people are coming over, there's typically something that always gets said. We have to get ready. And what that means is we have to make our home look more like a home and less like a war zone. And I remember one particular Saturday when we were having people come over the next day. So I was all about helping to get ready. I'm a good helper. My wife started doing her thing. She worked incredibly hard. I started doing my thing, and I started working incredibly hard. But at the end of the day, my wife was a little frustrated with me, and rightly so, as I would come to understand. She reminded me yesterday that I've just got to come to grips with the fact that she's usually right. But at the end of the day, she said this. She said, hey, Michael, I really wish you would have helped me a little more to get the house ready for people to come over. Now, I'll be honest with you. I worked hard that day. So I was a little surprised that she was saying that. 
So I said, what do you mean? I worked just as hard as you did. And she said, I know, but the stuff that you did didn't really need to be done in order to get ready for people to come over. So I started running through the list of what each of us had done, right? So Aaliyah, she killed it. She picked up all the kids' toys, the clothes, picked up the living room, swept them off the floor. She made sure the couches were cleaned off, got the kitchen ready to make food, cleared the table, wiped it down. She also cleaned the bathrooms that the guests would use. Everything she did was directed towards the area where people would be or what they would use. But then I started running through my list of the things that I had done. I cleaned the backyard. I washed the cars. I think I cleaned up our bedroom a little bit, which no one would see our bedroom. I organized my office. Again, no one would see that office. I think I even started some laundry that day. And as we were talking, Aaliyah lovingly pointed out, you did a lot. But the problem was that you prioritized the wrong things. And she was right. I did a lot. But what I did didn't really matter in terms of the specific thing that we were trying to accomplish. They all needed to be done. All the things I did, except maybe the cars, they needed to be done. They just didn't have to be done right then. They weren't the priority. And as I look back on that conversation, I couldn't say it then, but I can say it now. Aaliyah's words were really preaching a whole sermon. Is that you did a lot, but you didn't prioritize the right things. Because that lesson of prioritizing the right things, it's not just significant when it comes to cleaning your house. That lesson is significant when it comes to your faith as well. Listen, if we want a faith that moves us forward, a faith that is, that is ready for whatever the season is that the Lord has next for us, we have to cultivate a faith that prioritizes the right things. See, here's what I've come to know. We can do a lot in the name of Jesus and simultaneously accomplish nothing as a result. Because there are good things that if they take precedence over better things, become fruitless things. Let me say that again. There are good things that if they take precedence over better things, they become fruitless things. And what we see in Nehemiah 7 is a faith that prioritizes the right things and as a result continues to experience the blessings of God and their faith continues to move them forward into what God has for them. This is a unique text of scripture. We've had one of these before, right? These are one of those ones as a pastor when you're preaching through a book of the Bible that when you initially open up, you dread because like 70 verses of this thing is just a list of names and numbers. But remember, all of God's word is profitable, for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. So there's something that God wants us to see in Nehemiah 7. And I believe that as we dive into this text, we begin to see what it looks like to have a faith that prioritizes. And there are four priorities I want you to see this morning. And hopefully along the way, we'll draw some application that we can take with us. You with me? All right, here's the first thing that we see Nehemiah prioritize. Nehemiah prioritizes worship over worldly success. Worship over worldly success. Look back again with me at verses 1 through 3. He says, When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress. Here it is, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. Verse 3, I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot. Let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. 
So I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Nehemiah, so let me just give you the brief recap. At this point in the story, the wall of Jerusalem has finally been rebuilt. Nehemiah has successfully traveled from Susa after getting the word that the wall was in disarray. He, he got permission from King Artaxerxes. He got resources to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the cities. Despite opposition, despite threats, despite physical violence, despite plots to cause Nehemiah to fall, Nehemiah and the people have completed the rebuilding of the wall. And on top of that, they managed to do it in 52 days. And as Nehemiah says towards the end of chapter 6, this task was accomplished by God. But just because the building of the wall is coming to a close, there's still a danger to the people and so there's still work to be done. And so what Nehemiah does at the beginning of chapter 7 is, is in a very real sense he begins to shore up the defenses of the city. And as he does this, we see first that Nehemiah prioritizes the right thing at every step of the way. And here, at the very beginning, in the first three verses, he prioritizes worship over worldly success. Let me show it to you. See, we actually see it in a couple ways in this text. First note, who Nehemiah puts in charge of Jerusalem. It's Hananiah, his brother. Now, we're first introduced to Hananiah in chapter 1, verse 2. Do you remember? Hananiah, one of my brothers, arrived from men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. It was Hananiah at the beginning of the story that goes to Nehemiah when he's in Susa and gives the report of what's going on in Jerusalem. Now, a little technical work here. There's some debate as to whether or not Hananiah and Hananiah, both there in verse 2, are different people or the same person, if they're just two names for the same brother. I'll tell you where I land. Uh, there, there are reasons in the text I believe this. I'll be happy to share it with you after the service. It's not important for, for our sermon this morning. I think that Hananiah and Hananiah are the same person. So I'm just telling you that's why I'm referring to just one single individual here. I can make my case later, but even if it's two people, it doesn't change the point, so praise God. Because what is most significant is not whether it's one or two, but what Nehemiah says about him at the end of verse two. Why he gave him the position. Did you see it? It says that he was a man who feared God more than most. He was a faithful man who feared God more than most. So watch this. When Nehemiah explains his rationale for putting his brother in charge of the city, right? There might have been some calls of like, this is nepotism. You're just putting your family in, in positions of authority. You're trying to kind of consolidate your power. Nehemiah says, no, no, no. The reason is because he is a faithful man who feared God more than most. But notice what he's not. It's not that he has extensive background in government. It's not that he's a tried and true politician who knows how to work both sides of the aisle. It's not that he had proven to be, have a successful track record of running a business. And here's the thing, Nehemiah had those people. Because remember who was part of the building process in chapter 3? You had priests and nobles, you had officials and leaders, you had merchants and rulers and businessmen. You had people that had these skills. Nehemiah could have chosen them. But no, Nehemiah chooses his brother, and not simply because he's his brother. He was chosen because he had a track record of being a man who feared God more than most. Nehemiah could have looked at those with worldly accolades and said, that's what we need. But instead, Nehemiah looks to the man who is seasoned in worship and says, that's what we need. Because what Nehemiah understands is something that we have to understand, is that if you want physical work to have spiritual significance, that work cannot be divorced from genuine worship. 
that if you want physical work to have spiritual significance, that work cannot be divorced from genuine worship. And what Nehemiah was trying to accomplish, remember, was more than simply the physical work of rebuilding the city. What Nehemiah was trying to accomplish was was more than simply providing protection for a people. Nehemiah was attempting to glorify God by removing the disgrace of his people and the disgrace of the city. This is a physical work with spiritual significance. Therefore, what is needed, more than simply people who know how to work, is people who know how to worship. Listen, as a pastor, I understand this, because here's the thing. We were, we were blessed. Y'all, y'all have some amazing pastors at the church. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the other three, okay? You have amazing men who love Jesus. But can I tell you what we look at first with them? It wasn't their rhetorical skill. It wasn't their ability to parse all the languages. It was if these men knew how to love Jesus really well. Because we could teach the rest of it. I could teach you how to preach a sermon, Take anyone in here, give me a week. I'll teach you how to preach a sermon. But I can't make you love Jesus. I can't make you worship. But there's more even in the text, right? This truth is exemplified further back in verse 1, that Nehemiah prioritizes worship over worldly success. Look at verse 1. It says, when the wall had been rebuilt and I had, in, I had the doors installed, here it is, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites were appointed. These are spiritual positions. The gatekeepers and the singers are positions of service in the temple. Furthermore, the Levites were the tribe where all the priests came from. So watch this. Nehemiah takes the people who are used in temple worship and places them on the wall. Verse 3. And I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot. Let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. These religious leaders were to guard the wall and then appoint other citizens to guard as well. So here's what I'm trying to get you to see. The people that Nehemiah sets up as the ones who are to guard Jerusalem, the ones who are to watch over the people, are not the ones who are the most physically fit. They're not the ones who are tried and tested battle veterans. They are not the ones with the unique propensity for violence and warfare. Because ultimately, that's what they're going to need. They've got to be ready to fight. But no, Nehemiah takes people who are used to promoting worship. Again, because what matters more to Nehemiah than those with the worldly accolades Those who are the politicians, those who are good at battle, those who look the part through earthly wisdom. What matters more is those who are fixed and focused on the worship of God. And what Nehemiah is revealing is that above all else, worship matters. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see this morning. Often in the day in and day out activities of our life, we prioritize the wrong thing. We pursue the promotion, we pursue the recognition, we pursue the goals, we pursue comfort and safety at the expense of worship. And listen, I'm not saying that any of those things are bad things. Pursue that promotion. Pursue the recognition. Pursue the goals that you have. Pursue comfort for your family and some sense of safety, but never at the expense of worship. Because i got to be honest with you, my point, this first point was a little deceptive. I started off with deception. I'm sorry. Because what I did was pit worship against worldly success. But I just got to be fair. Pursuing worldly success at all costs is worship. It's just worshiping the wrong thing. Valuing the things of this world above the things of the kingdom of God, it is worship. It's just worshiping the wrong thing. The question is not, are we worshiping? The question that we have to answer this morning is, what are we worshiping? So let me pause and just put my little pastoral plea in there for you. 
I don't know what you're worshiping this morning, but I'm, but I'm going to kind of give you a little push. It's why you keep me around. It's why you pay me the big bucks, right? I got to be a pastor for a minute. I want to suggest to you this morning that worshiping God is the best thing that you can do with your life. I want to propose to you that it also just makes the most sense rationally. Why worship the things of this world when you can worship the one who holds this world in his hands? Why worship the wealth of this world when you can worship the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Why worship the praise of this world when the God of eternity offers to rejoice over you? What I'm getting at is don't settle for lesser worship. And a faith that is moving forward is a faith that prioritizes the worship of God in the everyday, day in and day out patterns and rhythms of your life. And let me be clear, I'm not just talking about prioritizing Sunday morning. Like, please do that. I'm glad you're here. But I'm talking about that we prioritize, like, I'm going to get in the car and drive for the glory of God. I'm going to go to work, and I'm going to work for the glory of God. I'm going to raise these rascal little kids for the glory of God. I'm going to be friends for the glory of God. I'm going to date for the glory of God. I'm going to be married for the glory of God. I'm going to go play basketball for the glory of God. I'm going to read for the glory of God. I'm going to write for the glory of God. I'm going to think for the glory of God. Everything is for the glory of God. We prioritize worship. Because here's something amazing about it. You know that sometimes when you prioritize worship, some of the questions you have about your life will be answered for you. You, you, know, you know what conversation I have more than any other conversation as a pastor. It's not just with you all. I'm not mad about this conversation. It's a great conversation. I'll have it. You need to have this conversation? Call me this afternoon. But that just tells me you didn't listen to what I'm about to say. But anyway... The question, the conversation that I have is people saying, I'm just trying to figure out what the will of God is for my life in this decision. My wife and I have sat with people who are trying to figure out what the will of God is for their life when it comes to their relationships and with marriage. We've sat with people who have tried to, are are making career decisions of, I'm trying to figure out what God's will is. You know, sometimes I think we overcomplicate the will of God. I really do. I'm not convinced that God has one path that you're supposed to walk, and if you don't, you are being unfaithful. I think sometimes God just asks the questions, what can you do with the choices before you that will bring me the most glory? Whichever one will let you worship the most, go do that thing. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to give you some insight. I'm not a believer that like the Lord had a soulmate for you. I think the Lord had a soulmate for me the moment I said, I do. Up until that point, it was open air. And I think that there are plenty of people that I could have worshiped God well with by marrying. But the reason I married my wife is because I can worship the Lord best with her. And sometimes we've got to think in terms of what can I do to bring God the most glory? Not what's going to get me the most money. Not what's going to further my career. What can I do right now that will bring God the most glory? That's prioritizing worship. So Nehemiah shows us a faith that prioritizes worship over worldly success. But here's the second priority he shows us. Nehemiah prioritizes people over projects. People over projects. Look again at verse 4. It says, The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. This is a very interesting verse because this verse reveals to us a few significant things. First, it tells us a little bit about the city. Jerusalem was still big and somewhat desolate. The temple was rebuilt, Ezra, Ezra and them did that. The walls have been rebuilt. There's no houses. There's no businesses. There's no, there's no sewage. There's, it's just walls and a temple, and it's open. So it's a big city. But second, it tells us that there are not a lot of people in the city because it's spacious. It's open. 
Remember, this is just a remnant that has returned to Jerusalem. And many of those who had returned to rebuild, remember, they left wives and children at home to come and rebuild. So the city wasn't full by any stretch of the imagination. But third, it tells us that there's more work to do. As we just mentioned, there's no houses built yet. That's coming later in Nehemiah. There are no shops. There's nothing that makes this a city other than a temple and some walls. There's no permanent dwelling places. The city is in progress. So here's my question. If that's the state of Jerusalem, open, poorly populated, and incomplete, why take so much time and resource to protect the walls and the city that wasn't even fully rebuilt yet? Here's the answer. Because there were people in the city. And the people in the city mattered more to Nehemiah than the city itself. The people mattered more than the project. So I once had a, I once had a professor in college. I'm not going to name any names. Uh, he's a man that I'd spent some time with. I went to a, a Bible college as well, just side note. I was starting out in ministry. I was early in my ministry assignment. I wanted to be discipled. I was still figuring this thing out. So one day I reached out to this, this man. He was, a, he was a professor there, and I asked him if he would consider discipling me. I'll never forget his response. This is what he said. He said, I can't because right now, I'm too busy doing ministry to commit that much time and effort to individual people. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I heard that, initially that response bothered me, but I couldn't definitively tell you why it bothered me. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've grown in my understanding of Scripture and what ministry actually is, the more I think I understand why it bothered me so much when I heard it. You see, ministry ceases to be ministry if people are forgotten along the way. In other words, people matter more than our projects. And please listen to me, church. We're going to go through some seasons where we have projects. We're in the midst of a project right now. We're in the beginning stage of one. We're trying to acquire a space. We're trying to find a building. We're trying to raise money. We're trying to do a thousand things. Y'all have no idea the work that goes on for that behind the scenes. It's a huge project. It takes a lot of my time, my energy, and my effort. But I understand that that project loses any worth if people are forgotten along the way. Because people matter more than our projects. Please hear me. You don't have to look much further than Jesus to see this truth. Who did Jesus come to seek and save? People. Who was Jesus constantly around and ministering to? People. Why would Jesus willingly lay down his life as a ransom? For people. Jesus models for us a faith that prioritizes people and not just their spiritual state. Watch this. He prioritizes people holistically. And in a very real sense, we see that same thing in our text this morning. As we talked about, Nehemiah sets up spiritual leaders to care for the physical well-being of the people. He sets up spiritual leaders to make sure they are physically safe. Listen to me, I'm begging you, please don't get caught up in this trap that Christianity is trying to get you trapped up in right now. This idea that on one hand, faithfulness requires just preaching the gospel and not doing anything else. Y'all have heard it. Just preach the gospel. We don't need to be involved with all that stuff. Just preach the gospel. Right? Like we, 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 don't, we don't need to talk about race issues. We don't, need to, we don't need to talk about equity issues. We don't need to talk about income issues. We don't need to talk about all that stuff. Just preach the gospel. And they say that anybody who does anything else is just a leftist, woke, fill in the word that's now being thrown or whatever it is. But then on the other hand, you have those that say, no, Christianity is all about doing things for people. We're not going to really preach the gospel. We're just going to love them real well because we don't want to try to hold them hostage with our faith. We're just going to do good things, and somehow they're going to understand that Jesus loved them. He died on a cross to save them, and we're just going to do that. And they say anything other than that is just that fundamental conservative right. And we say, please don't fall into that trap because Jesus knows nothing about those two categories. 
as individual categories. Because Jesus cared about the spirit and the soul and he cared about the body. There is a reason that he healed the, the sick, that he gave sight to the blind, that he let the deaf hear, that he raised physical bodies from the dead. And there is a reason that he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are people that care about people holistically. Why? Because the whole person is made in the image of God. It is not just your spirit. It is not just your soul that is made in the image of God. It is your hands. It is your feet. It is your skin color. It is your eyes. It is your ears. It is your stomachs. We care about people holistically. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that it has to be either or. Because if it's either or, it's unfaithful. It's both and. And Nehemiah models that here. Jesus models it in his ministry. We have to care about people holistically. We feed the soul and the stomach. We bandage the physical wounds and we offer a balm for the wounds that we can't see. We care for people in physical distress while offering spiritual deliverance. Why? Because the whole person is made in the image of God. So we see Nehemiah prioritize worship over worldly success, people over project. But here's the third priority of Nehemiah. Nehemiah prioritizes remembrance over revolutionizing. Remembrance over revolution. Let me explain what I mean here. There is a tendency. I feel it as a pastor. But there is a tendency for many to want to revolutionize the faith. And what I mean is being caught in believing that the faith of those who have gone before us is somehow not sufficient for the day and the time that we are living in. Right? To believe that we have to somehow become more creative with how we do church, more entertaining in our gospel presentations. We have to revolutionize how we think about the church and our mission in the world. Now listen to me. I want to be clear. I am not saying there is not a place for contextualization. There absolutely is. Right? We want to remove barriers. We, we bring the gospel in different ways into different settings. We contextualize the message, but we don't need a new message. I'm also not saying that we got to look back and think that the church has always gotten everything right because they haven't done that either. But what I am saying is that we need remembrance more than we, we need revolution in the church. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I read an article recently with this headline. The headline's enough probably for you. But it says, is gathering together as the church becoming obsolete? And it went on to argue that the physical gathering of the body and our technologically advanced work is somehow less than, it's somehow insignificant, and we got to move away from it. I'm just going to tell you, church, I never gathered together because I thought that it was the most culturally convenient. I gathered together because the Bible said, let us not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but all the, day, all the more as we see the day drawing near. We need to prioritize that obedience, not doing new things. There's a temptation to look back on the history of the people of God and think that they need us to do something better and to do something new. Let me, just, let me give you a freebie. This wasn't in my service. This is just for y'all, okay? I once had somebody tell me, and I think they're right, that if, if, if you come up with something new in the faith, after 2,000 years of faithful brothers and sisters, you're probably a heretic anyway. Because Jesus doesn't need you to come up with news. If you're reading the Bible and you found insight that nobody else has found, that nobody else has seen, all right. There is a temptation to look down on the people of faith that have come before and believe that God needs us to do something different, something better, and something new. But, but I want you to see this. What Nehemiah does, what Nehemiah is led by God to do is to take record of those who are working. And as he does, let me, let me just read it to you. Verse 5. 
It says, then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. And he said, I found the genealogical record of those who came back first. And I found the following written in it. These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and to Judah to his own town. So in verse 5, Nehemiah, as God puts it in his heart to kind of take a census, if you will, he finds the genealogical record of those who came back first. Those who came back from exile decades before and faithfully served and rebuilt the temple. And watch this, the rest of chapter, of chapter 7 is Nehemiah recording the same thing that's found in Ezra 2. It's the exact same list. What Nehemiah is doing is he spends the rest of the chapter remembering those who have come before him, acknowledging their faithfulness. And rather than seeing himself as doing something new, he sees himself standing on the shoulders of those who had come before him, continuing the work of faithful men and women who came before. Listen, you might be tired of hearing me say this, but I don't really care because I'm going to say it over and over again. If we are going to have a faith that moves forward, we have to cultivate a faith that looks back that looks back on the faithful men and women who came before us and who made much of the glory of God. There is a reason, church, that all throughout Scripture you have countless list after list after list of people's names. There is a reason that Nehemiah spends nearly all of this, the remainder of this chapter on the people who have come before him. It is a testimony to the fact that they aren't the first faithful people. Because let's be honest, we can have that Elijah on the mountainside moment too, right? God, ain't nobody left but me. Nobody else has been faithful. Nobody knows what it's like to try to serve you, to try to minister to these stiff-necked people. It's just me. I'm all by myself. But looking back is a testimony to the fact that God has been working throughout all of creation. It is a testimony to the fact that this is not our story to write, but that God has been writing every page of it. I mean, just consider, right, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Almost an entire chapter, looking back. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one one who had promised was faithful. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promise, and yet he was offering his one and only son. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. And then you get to the end, and it says, and what more can we say? Time is too short for me to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. And the world was not worthy of them. They They wandered in deserts deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Why is all of this in the Bible? 
so that you would be forced to look back and remember. Remember what? It's not primarily about remembering how great these people were. It's not primarily about remembering how great their faith was. It's about remembering how great the God they place their faith in is. That through simple obedience, God can do incredible things. We look back at the faithfulness of people, even this simple list in Nehemiah 7, and we remember how faithful God has been to his people when they are willing to simply obey and do what he has called them to do. God doesn't need you to do something new in order for him to show off. God's good at showing off all by himself. What God wants from you is to do simply as Jude 3 says, to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saint once and for all. Just be faithful. And often we see the faithfulness of God through the faithfulness of God's people. Because it's not just the saints in the Bible we look at. We need to remember those who came before us who reformed the church when it was corrupted by greed and self-serving pride and idolatry and their simple commitment and obedience to the word of God sparked the faith tradition that you are a part of. We need to remember our brothers and sisters who labored in Asia in the face of imprisonment and persecution and death and their simple commitment of refusing to be silent when God had called them to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Their faithfulness and blood has nourished the soil where the gospel is right now taking root at a, pa- at a pace faster than anywhere else in the entire world. We need to remember our brothers and sisters in the antebellum south who, when faced with slavery, chains, and pure brutality, refused to stop crying out their praises to the God who had delivered once and they believed would deliver again. And God used their refusal to be broken to force a nation to recognize the evil of slavery. Let me again just be clear. We don't look back at these people. We're not looking for a testimony of their greatness, but a testimony to the faithfulness of God when people refuse to depart from his ways. We don't need something new. I don't know, church. My faith still clings to an old rugged cross. The problem is not that our ways have become ineffective. The problem, more often than not, is that our remembrance has grown cold. Because my God can still make a way where there is no way. And my God can still cause manna to fall from heaven and seas to split. My God still gives sight to the blind. He makes the lame walk. He brings the dead back to life. He has never needed me to revolutionize the faith. He simply wants me to be faithful. Listen to me. I want us to be a testimony. There's a quote attributed to an Austrian Christian back in the 1700s. His name is Nicholas Ludwig Count von Zinzendorf. He's attributed with this saying, makes its way around Christian circles all the time. He says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. A lot of people love that quote. I hate that quote. Here's why I hate it. I'm just going to be honest. I don't want to be forgotten. No, and this isn't a pride thing. This isn't a, I want my name to be remembered so people that know how great I was. No, that's not it. I want, that, I want people 100 years from now to be able to look back at Michael Matala and say his God was faithful. His God was faithful. Not because I'm great, not because I did great things, because my life is a testimony to the faithfulness of God. That people can look at me and say he trusted God when there was no way and his God made a way. That he did what God called him to do and God was faithful every step of the way. I want people to look back and say that even when Michael was faithless, God was faithful because he could not deny himself. I want my life, I want the life of this church, of your life, to be a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Because a hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries, those brothers and sisters are going to need something to look back on too. 
And when they look back on us, are they going to see a people who contended for the same gospel? A people who refused to bend when the culture was telling it to bend? A people that refused to define their faith by political parties and partisan ideologies that refused to compromise when the world said compromise? That's what I want. I want to leave a legacy, not so that my name will be known, but so that my God looks even greater for the next generation. But we will only be faithful moving forward if we're faithful to look back. And so Nehemiah, as he continues to move forward in faith, he prioritizes worship over worldly success. He prioritizes people over projects. He prioritizes remembrance over revolutionizing. And here's the final thing I want you to see. He prioritized sacrifice over safety. Look at the last few verses in our text, beginning in verse 70. He's still talking about the families who had come before him back in Ezra's day and Zerubbabel's day. He says, beginning in 70, some of the family heads contributed to the project. The governor gave 1,000 gold coins, 50 bowls, 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family heads gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,200 silver minus to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minus, 67 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the temple singers, some of the people, temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns. As Nehemiah, as he's recording the census of all those who returned from exile in the past, in these verses, he makes it a point to note their sacrifice that the people of God who returned were so committed to the glory of God that they were willing to sacrifice their means and their income and even their physical ability to bring God glory. Because we have to remember, this is, this is already a people who is struggling. Even in Ezra day, Ezra's day, they're coming out of exile. They're coming out of captivity. This isn't a people who is giving out of abundance they're giving out of an already significant deficit. We saw some of that in Nehemiah 5 when we saw, we saw the social injustice going on. There are people saying to Nehemiah, listen, we've had to sell our children into slavery because this building project is taking too much. This wasn't a wealthy people just giving out of their excess. This was an already lacking people giving sacrificially out of their lack. But they believed that God receiving glory was worth more than their earthly security, and so they sacrificed. And I just want to remind you this morning, church, that the Christian life is a life of sacrifice. We see it at every turn. We are called, we are called to be willing to sacrifice our relationships. Anyone who come after me must deny, deny mother and father and brother and sister. We're called to sacrifice our energy and our abilities. We're called to sacrifice our resources. And, and I want you to hear what I'm saying this morning. And I know it's hard. I'm not calling you to be willing to sacrifice. I'm calling you to prioritize your sacrifice. That's what Nehemiah is showing us. It's not that we have a willingness. If a need comes up, sure, we'll give. No, no, no. We're going to prioritize being sacrificial people. Even if there doesn't seem to be a need, we're still going to sacrifice because our faith is a sacrificing faith. Now, some might be thinking, now, why in the world would I do that? Well, here's the thing. I believe there's blessing even in the sacrifice. I'm going to shoot you straight. This is, this is a hard one for me, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
Uh, because here, let me tell you why. Like I, I have never wanted my ministry, never wanted my ministry to ever be characterized by, by being a prosperity pimp. That ain't it. And so there's a hesitancy, right, to kind of talk about money and God's blessing because it's been hijacked for such wrong things. But sometimes you just got to call a spade a spade. And the Bible tells us, test God and see if he doesn't now give you back. Sacrifice and see if God doesn't bless you. Now, I'm not saying that means you're going to get the boat. That means you're going to get the car or the mansion. That's not what I'm saying. We've also misunderstood God's blessing. Sometimes his blessing are, they are physical blessings. Praise God. Some of y'all got testimonies right now that you didn't know how you're going to make it through, and somehow you have money in the bank account when it came time to praise bills because God is faithful and he cares about that. Sometimes the blessing is relational, and sometimes the blessing is eternal, meaning you ain't going to see it until you get there. But we believe in a God that will outgive your sacrifice. How do I know this to be true? Because I can look at the gospel and see it. Like we can't act like God won't out-sacrifice us and outgive us. Because... What is Jesus' life and ministry if it's not categorized by sacrifice? Philippians 2 tells us that he sacrificed his place with God to come and dwell among us. Right? This is God in flesh. And it is a humbling thing to walk the ground you created. And then he sacrificed any righteous pride that he should have. Because he is the son of God and people didn't see him as that. He faithfully fulfilled the law. He was the best of us. He perfectly obeyed God in everything. He was ridiculed. He was spat on. He was mocked. He was beaten. They nailed him to a cross. He sacrificed himself to pay the debt that you and I owe. But if you want to know how I know that God will outgive your sacrifice, because then three days later, he got up. And Jesus sacrificed, and the Bible says in Philippians 2 that because of that, he has given the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God. God will take your sacrifice and give you a blessing in return. And the gospel proclaims that to us. In fact, Nehemiah, as we've seen so often, is a lighter, lesser, lower version of a higher, heavier, holy, a higher, heavier, you got it, holier, (laughs) redeemer. Because Jesus prioritized worship over worldly success. How do I know that? You remember his temptation in Matthew chapter 4? Like, bow down and worship me, and I will give the nations to you. That's some worldly success right there. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to worship God instead. Jesus prioritizes people over projects. We already talked about that. Jesus' entire ministry was spent with people. And with the people that nobody else wanted to spend time with at that. And he prioritized them, not just their souls, but their physical bodies as well. Jesus prioritizes remembrance over revolutionizing. Now, here's the thing. Jesus gets a pass on the revolutionizing thing because he did revolutionize the faith. Amen? It's a new covenant inaugurated by Jesus. But even he still models remembrance. He remembered Elijah and Moses. How do I know him? Because he let them see the promise that he had made in the Old Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration. He remembered the words of the prophets. The word made flesh in the present remembered the word of God spoken in the past. And so he faithfully fulfilled all the prophecies of this coming Messiah. Even Jesus remembered as he moved forward. And we know that Jesus prioritized sacrifice over security because he willingly gave up his life to redeem wretched people like you and me. Because he loves us. Church, I want to see us as a people of God, cultivate a faith that prioritizes the right thing. Because in essence, what I'm calling you to do is to prioritize the heart of God. 
Because all of these things matter to God. See, he determines what the priorities are. But what I have come to believe, and I'm still learning more, is that when we prioritize the things of God, life might not be easy, but it's faithful. And there's a blessing that is awaiting those who are willing to be obedient to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that every word of Scripture matters and that you have decided to, to see fit to communicate to us. And God, I thank you for the example of those who have gone before us. I thank you for Nehemiah, his faithfulness in prioritizing the right things. But even more than Nehemiah, I thank you for Jesus, who is the perfect example of what it looks like to worship you, to prioritize people, to remember your faithfulness, and to sacrifice even if it costs security. God, let us be a people that has a faith that is moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.